0: It's just by deciding what's important in life first. You know, none of this shit matters. We're all going to die, right? This is just what we do to make money. So it's deciding what do you want your life to look like? How do you want your relationships to be? How do you want your time with your kids? What are your hobbies going to be like? What are you doing for fun? What are you doing for balance? And then saying, how does work fit into that? Instead of focus, focus, focus on work, we, we often miss the rest of our life. Like we don't have goals for the rest of our lives. We don't commit the goals to the rest of the people in our lives. And we're so often myopically focused Today, I'm sharing with you a recast of my appearance on the Chris Harder Show. In my conversation with Chris, we dive deep into the world of leadership and making that crucial decision of finding the right second-in-command. We also explore insights from my book, The Second in Command, and discuss how my current digital nomad journey has transformed my approach to business leadership. Trust me, you don't want to miss our thoughts on what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur and how to stay connected with your core purpose through all the ups and downs. Let's jump right in. All right,
1: Cameron, welcome to the show. What an honor. How are you doing?
0: Hey, Chris. Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Literally my my privilege. You know, we've never met before, but okay. everybody who we have in common as friends and acquaintances, they just rave about you. They rave about you as a human. They rave about you as a leader. They rave about you as a teacher. And so this moment for me has been long overdue and one that I've been looking forward to. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, so I think I want to kick this thing off by uh, saying congratulations. Your brand new book dropped today, and it is like topping the charts on every single chart since it dropped this morning,
0: yeah, we we got lucky. I guess we hit five number one categories in the first by by nine a m this morning, we were already number one in five categories, and it's starting to climb. we we I didn't write it. I've always hit number one in Amazon multiple categories. My goal is is really to be, you know, like an Amazon number one bestseller, two, three, four, five years from now, right. right? To write a book that is really strong, that is strong for the ages that really will help change companies. And I think that's what we did with this one.
1: That's great. You know, it's it's called Second in Command, and we're going to talk plenty about it as the show goes on. But I think before we get into the book, I think I want people to really get to know you. And, and you're doing something really cool right now. Uh, you sold everything, yeah. and you are hitting the road literally and metaphorically. And you're just a a free man out there in the world visiting countries. Shed some light on what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I guess a uh, few years ago, my wife and I sat down and talked about what did we want to do, where, where did we want our lives to go, where we want our relationships to go. And we realized that being in one spot all the time wasn't really what we wanted. We wanted to explore the world and see the countries and see what was out there. And you know, I'd, I'd lived in Arizona, I'd had a home here for 10 years, I'd had a home in Vancouver for 27 years. And, um, you know, I'd had, I was a member at Arizona country club. I was a member at Marine drive country club in Vancouver. I was a member at Vancouver lawn and tennis club. I was like, I wasn't even using three memberships at three clubs, had all the cars and the assets and stuff. And I was like, I'd rather be traveling. Like I, 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 my happier times are when I'm exploring the world with with my wife or with my friends or with myself or with my kids. So we sold everything and, um, we kind of saw these digital nomads and said, well, there's no age category on that. And I can run my company from anywhere. My employees are all remote, anywhere. My clients are from all over the world. I've got clients from 17 countries. Why not just go and travel? And now we're doing it. That's amazing. What's been the uh, the biggest lesson on the road so far? Probably how little you need, how little I need, right? To be happy, you know, Amazon's not showing up at the door constantly because there's nowhere to put stuff. Um, So you're not buying things because there's you don't need things. Oh, I'm pretty happy wherever I lay my hat. You know, I, I don't, I, I can kind of settle into a place pretty quickly and just feel comfortable. Um, and I don't let stuff really rub me. I kind of roll with the punches and I, I've definitely been able to, to do that as well.
1: It's interesting you say that, you know, you and I were talking offline and I said during COVID, uh, Lori and I bought a motorhome. Lori's my wife, and we bought a motorhome and, you know, just hit the road for months and months and months. And now I am not trying to paint the picture that we were roughing. It was a 45 foot bus, but... When you said you don't need much, we ate off the same damn plastic dishes every yep. single night, and it was a bag salad and some kind of meat on a little Weber grill, and the simplicity of that was yep. one of the absolute best parts, and you really do learn what makes you happy and what ties you down that you thought might have made you happy. It's a, I, I recommend everybody does it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's not easy either. I mean, my my wife bears the brunt of of, of a fair bit of our stuff because she likes to coordinate and organize things and and uh, likes things to be perfect. So she's you know looks for the right Airbnb and the right location. But it's hard to find some normalcy at times too, right? It's hard to find the gym or a yoga studio, or um, it's hard to find a good trainer. It's hard to find the right grocery store, and then once you figure it all out, you pack up and leave again. Yeah, right? when you're when you're moving every couple of weeks, um, uh, you know we hit twenty three countries last year on, I think we hit five continents. Yeah, you you pretty much, you know, we were in Antarctica in January. Like this time last year, I was in Antarctica. So when you're constantly moving like that, it's hard to find some stability and, and that can be hard as well. So you don't want to paint the picture that, you know, be, when you see that perfect Instagram photo, there's, there's often a lot happening behind the scenes to take that photo too, right?
1: Yeah, isn't that the truth? Do you wish that you would have done this at a different stage in your life or is this the perfect timing for you?
0: I, I did do it as well. When I was 25, I traveled around the world for 12 months and I hit 18 countries in 12 months backpacking with no internet, no cell phone. I went by myself and um, you know, I did a lot of Southeast Asia and the Middle East and parts of Europe. And yeah, I, I think doing it then really opened me up. I've been to 64 countries now. Wow. So I think I think that kind of exploration has always been a part of me. Even my kids who are 19 and 21, they've both been to about 25 countries each already as well.
1: Cameron, this is a good way for us to start dipping our toes into your profession. When I opened the show, I had said everyone I talked to says you're the best leader on on earth. And I've actually had the privilege of seeing you speak before and and every single thing I've ever seen coming out of you, I would have to agree. And I've got to assume that being to, would you say 64 countries? Yeah. 64 countries. And experiencing that much different culture and ways of living and different types of business, I've got to assume that you picked up a lesson or two that's made you the
0: leader you are. Is that a fair assumption? Um, I'm I'm certainly more empathetic to people. I'm empathetic to the human condition. Um, I'm empathetic to the fact that, you know, we're all struggling, we're all just walking each other home. I'm definitely empathetic to, especially for the US, how divided the US is currently. Yeah. Um, and the rest of the world is talking about it. You know, you can go to—I mean, I can give you a list of countries. Pick any of them that I've been to in the last few years. If they're talking about a debate on something, they have the debate and then they continue on with their dinner. Yeah. But it doesn't end in oh, you're this political party or that I'm that political party. And it's sad seeing that. And and they're looking in, going, what the fuck is it? Like, why can't you just? I want to go for a burger. Oh, you're such a Republican. It's like no, I want <laughs> a burger. Like it is not Republican. You know I mean? Like. Or you know, like, uh, let's go for a swim. Oh, you're such a Democrat. No, I just want to go swimming. Like, it's not a like, I, it, so I'm seeing that. I don't know if that's maybe a better leader, but I'm certainly, my eyes are wide open for sure to the world. Let me ask you a follow-up question to that. Um,
1: I've got friends, there, expats. They moved to Florence, Italy. Hmm. And boy, the approach towards life over there is maybe. so opposite compared well, to the approach is. in the United States, right? Yeah, And, and, and you know what I'm talking about.
0: I ate pasta. We were in Italy for 6 weeks 2 years ago. I ate pasta for 6 weeks, two meals a day, and I lost weight. Yeah, isn't it wild? well? Well, I lost weight because the sizes that they serve are are human size, not family size for everything, right? So you get like a little bit of pasta and then you have your meats. Um they serve the foods in the right order. Um so you actually have your salad first and then you have your meats and then you have your pastas like they they serve it in an order that your bodies are supposed to be digesting it in. And you walk everywhere. Like you don't get in a car and drive to the restaurant. Like you walk to the restaurant, you walk to a cafe, you walk to your home, you walk to the sites, you walk to the theater, you're constantly walking. So we were like 12,000 steps every day without doing anything, you know, and here it's like a chore just to walk a thousand. Yeah. You notice that as well. Florence is magic. They also, people also in the rest of the world, they work to live. They don't live to work. right? So they work to be able to pay their bills. They work to be able to to provide themselves a lifestyle, but they're not trapped up in all of the things partially because they don't have these huge homes to be able to fill them with stuff, but they all get five, six weeks vacation. That's normal. Mm -hmm. Like Italy takes off the entire month of July. They just all shut down. So you start realizing that that's really what life is about, right? Time with friends, time with family, time with yourself, time with your hobbies. Uh, And work is something we do to pay the bills. It doesn't have to be lopsided. And you so can you, still enjoy what you do to pay the bills too, but it doesn't have to be our everything.
1: So here's the first tough question then. I feel like what you're describing is the right approach to life, but that's mm-hmm. just an opinion. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you're pretty fond on that approach to life as well. Mm-hmm. But you built three different companies, not just the one you're famous for, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, but three oh, different hello. companies to multiple nine figures. Yeah. And I've got to imagine that took some kind of live to work grind to get there. How do you it, reconcile it, those two
0: things? Yeah, it didn't actually take it. It's it's what I sadly put in, but it could have been done better because I've seen plenty of companies do it better. But yeah, that was me. You can see that, wow. picture. that was 42 pounds heavier than I am today. That was 12 years ago. Um, I just was unhealthy. You don't have to be unhealthy. You know, you can still work hard and go to the gym. You can still work hard and eat healthy. You can still work hard and have normal outlets for your stress that aren't alcohol. But, you know, I was getting up at seven in the morning and working till seven at night. I could have probably had a salad at lunch instead of snarfing down pasta or a sandwich at my desk. Instead of going out for dinner, or if I did, I could have had a salad, but not start my dinner with two Manhattans and a bottle of wine and Grand Marnia afterwards, which was four days a week. You know, so I was just living this very unhealthy lifestyle that has nothing to do with whether the company was big or not. You know, at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I would be home every day at six. And, and I was spending time with my kids. I wasn't working on weekends. I shouldn't have worked as many nights because I was never going to catch up. I should have delegated faster or said no more. And I think if I'd learned to delegate faster and, and said no more, we probably could have grown even faster. I think we could have been a much better company had I learned what I now know today back then. Cameron,
1: this is right here. We can just end the podcast. And that is the lesson of all lessons right there, that you don't have to forsake the size of the goal. But there's a much more elegant way of getting there. So then here's the follow up question to that. In a, a world, let me rephrase that, in a country where everybody seems to be running a rat race to grow these great big milestones, how do you set the boundaries? How do you hold on to the boundaries to be the healthy person that can still grow a large size company?
0: It's just by deciding what's important in life first, right? You know, none of this shit matters. We're all going to die right? This is just what we do to make money. So it's deciding what do you want your life to look like? How do you want your relationships to be? How do you want your time with your kids? What are your hobbies going to be like? What are you doing for fun? What are you doing for balance? And then saying, how does work fit into that? Instead of focus, focus, focus on work, we, we often miss the rest of our life. Like we don't have goals for the rest of our lives. We don't commit the goals to the rest of the people in our lives. And we're so often myopically focused on just work. Sometimes we're only focused on that because we're really hurting in all these other areas, and we don't know who to turn to or how to turn to others to get support or to get help or to say that we're hurting, so that we just we fill our life with the one thing that feeds us, which is that dopamine rush we get from working, right yeah, guilty, like hand raised, totally guilty.
1: all right, I want to take you back in time. I want to ask you about your father. you know I had the best relationship in the world with my father, and and he was taken too early, and he had a lot of profound. Effects on who I turned out to be today. Well, I've seen and heard you say that your father kind of groomed you to be an entrepreneur. Explain that if you don't
0: mind. Yeah, and my dad. My dad sadly passed away in September, very suddenly, as well. We, oh, we, I'm sorry. We were together over in August in Poland. Had an amazing trip in Poland together. He had his 80th birthday with all of his his um, you know kids and grandkids and stuff around, and then heart attack and was gone. And he was swimming three days a week and golfing three days a week at 80, and just very sudden.
1: Cameron, that you know, was my father. Not to to compare stories, but 72 healthy worked out every day, no body fat, and no precursors and had a heart attack and boom was gone.
0: But yeah, some of that is like my my dad's heart. Uh, he was such a strong athlete that he was pushing through stuff, but his arteries were all completely clogged because of diet and um, not understanding that and trying to push through that when the body said, I'm in trouble that the mind can't push any harder, right? The body yeah. has had to kick in. So yeah. So my dad groomed us as entrepreneurs. My, my father was an entrepreneur. Both sets of grandparents were entrepreneurs. And we were groomed to be entrepreneurs and never to be employees. So we were told that being an employee was stupid. We were told that being an employee was you know a bad deal, that you're trading time for money. Um, we were shown that you know employees kind of work hard all day to get the same paycheck every week, no matter how hard or little they work. And we were shown the opportunities of free time, that being an entrepreneur wasn't about money. It was about being able to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, be able to delegate all the stuff you don't want and, and be able to have as much free time as you want, take vacations whenever you want, go wherever you want, and the money would follow. So yeah, for the last 15 to 25 years, my brother, my sister, and myself have all run our own companies. Um it's really all that and we've worked, I've worked for a couple, but we always really a partner in or in a very entrepreneurial nature in the in the sense of when it got junk, but yeah, uh, very entrepreneurial for sure. I had 12 employees when I was 20 years old. What was your first successful business? However, you want to define that. Yeah, my my first real business, I was 20 and I had 12 employees. I was running a house painting company while I was in university. Um, Did that for three summers, made very good money. I graduated from university with no debt. Um, I paid for all my own schooling and I bought a house the year that I graduated. So that would have been my first successful business. My first business venture, I was seven. I was, was collecting coat hangers from houses, and then I was selling them to the dry cleaners. And I was negotiating over the phone with dry cleaners, trying to negotiate prices. And yeah. That's seven. That's seven. My mom came into my bedroom, and I was going through the yellow pages. And I was writing. A, <laughs> I can still remember doing it. I was writing the price down beside every, every dry cleaner, and I was phoning them all. And one of them only wanted to give me two cents, and I wanted three cents per coat hanger. And, and he's like, no, two. And I'm like, how about two and a half? And he goes, how old are you? And I said, I'm seven. How about two and a half? And he goes, okay, two and a half. And I said, good, we'll come this afternoon. And I hung up the phone. I was seven and like hardcore negotiating. And, and you know, so I learned all these lessons as being a kid and being entrepreneurial that have stuck with me today.
1: So do you think being an entrepreneur as a you know, personality type, is that nature or nurture or a little bit of both?
0: Yeah, I talk about it because I actually did a talk that's on the main TED website about let's raise kids as entrepreneurs, had millions of views. And I talk about thing one and thing two. So there's the DNA of the entrepreneur, and then there's the skills that you need to become an entrepreneur. The DNA is something that a lot of people don't have. And sadly, being an entrepreneur has become very trendy, where a lot of people are trying to become entrepreneurs and they're not meant to be. They don't have the entrepreneurial DNA. They're not wired to be entrepreneurs. They might be entrepreneurial but they're better working in a corporate environment or in a business environment or maybe being a freelancer for lots of different companies but they're not cut out to be the entrepreneur. Some of the entrepreneurial DNA that's recognized by the medical system and the school system are called diseases. You know, ADD is a disease, but it's a superpower as an entrepreneur. Yeah. The fact that I have 17 of the 18 signs of attention deficit disorder means I see everything. I see what's happening with my customers, the suppliers, the market, the economies, you know, my social media, my launch, what, you know, what's happening in the family with my numbers, the website, but all these details overwhelm me and I can't keep track of them all. So I need to delegate them quickly, or I need to create systems to organize all this stuff. If I was so focused, I would miss all those other opportunities. You know, When I was told by the school system, sit still, pay attention. I can't, I can't fucking pay attention. I'm seeing everything and you're not seeing anything, right? So for me, it was a superpower to recognize that. And if I medicated that, It would hurt me so what i learned was how do i leverage my add i've sat in three different places no four today in this home that i'm in an airbnb i've sat in four different places doing work today because the external stimuli i get fed by so and there's different spots that i work in that are better for different kinds of work right the second dna trait of entrepreneurs is most entrepreneurs are bipolar Mm. the mania is why people will quit their job and join us. It's why they'll invest in the idea. It's why we start things without a plan. It's, it's where the perpetual motion machines and people love that energy that we, they feed off of. The stress and depression is simply us course correcting because we can't tell everybody what we're really feeling. We can't tell the new employee, by the way, I've just hired you and I have no idea how I'm going to pay you. We can't tell our spouse that we're really working really hard, but we're not paying ourselves what we should be, or we're not submitting expenses, or we not quite sure how we're going to meet payroll, or we're going through an audit, like, and we can't tell our employees all this stuff. So we sit all by ourselves, unless we're in a mastermind community with other entrepreneurs that we can connect with, that, that pressure also often magnifies. And then we also often try to work our way through stuff instead of feeling good about taking a break. We feel the guilt of the breaks instead of recognizing we need to slow down to speed up later, right? We need to treat ourselves like racehorses. Those are the DNA traits of entrepreneurs. The skills of entrepreneurs are problem solving, leveraging technology, marketing, sales, leadership. You know, time management, project management. Those are skills that can be learned, but the traits are very different. I had fifteen. I could name them all to this day. Probably fifteen little business ventures by the time I was eighteen. Wow, that's not, that's not a normal childhood.
1: That is not a normal childhood at all, right? You know what's, what's neat though is I think you've just spoken to a huge chunk of the population. Mm -hmm. who are sometimes told that they're broken or they're not going to make it or something's wrong with them. And I think you've just empowered them to harness their uniqueness and find a way to make it a superpower. I I think you just freed a lot of people up right there.
0: I was was sitting with my dad outside of the uh, principal's office when I was 12, grade six. And uh, my dad was inside, the door was closed and he was arguing with the principal. And finally, I heard my dad say, there's nothing wrong with my fucking kid. The problem is the school. Yeah. And and the door opened. He grabbed me by the hand. He goes, "Let's go. We're leaving." And on the way home, I said, "What's going on? What's wrong?" He said, "There's nothing wrong with you. You're just like me." Mm-hmm. And I was getting in trouble for not paying attention, for selling stuff to all the kids, for being distracted, for yeah. for not following the rules, for because it was boring.
1: Yeah.
0: Like I I don't still don't even understand why I was learning how to multiply fractions or like. When am I going to use this? That's wild. Like, Cameron, what? I
1: was just going to say, thanks for sharing some of those, those quips about your dad. He sounds like he was an incredible man and an incredible leader for you. Yeah, he was good. You mentioned mastermind. Are you a fan of masterminds?
0: Yeah, I've been in about nine of them. I've spent, I think I quantified the other day, I've spent about $700,000 in mastermind communities, but I've got easily a 10x return on all of them. I was in Strategic Coach for seven years, Genius Network for seven years. I'm going to my fourth Baby Bathwater event. I've been to five Mastermind Talks events. I've been a 5 years member of the Entrepreneurs Organization. I've gone to War Room, Go Abundance, Camp Mavericks, and gazillions.
1: I feel the exact same way as you. You met your business partner for 1-800-GOT-JUNK at a Mastermind, right?
0: Yeah, we were we were both members of the Entrepreneurs Organization, and we ended up in a forum, which is a small group of entrepreneurs that met every single month for four and a half years. So before I joined him, he'd watched me build two other companies. He was my best man at my wedding wow. 3 months before I started to work for him. So we kind of had an unfair advantage and it was because of that mastermind community because we invested to be a part of this and be around other entrepreneurs and kind of you know if you're the smartest person in the room you're in the wrong room. It was that whole adage of just going in and showing up and learning and realizing wow we know nothing and and yet we knew everything, right?
1: That's incredible. So this That brings me to two different questions I want to ask about being in a mastermind. The first one's the easy one, so I'll tee it up. Uh, I run a mastermind. It's a $50,000 mastermind for seven-figure earners and up. And in there is this incredible couple from Canada, and they are starting a service-based franchise. And they're in the very beginning. So they haven't actually franchised it yet. It's been a service that they've had for a long time, uh, and they want to turn it into a franchise. So what would be your your one piece? They would kill me if I didn't ask you this. What would be your yeah. one piece of advice for them as they look to franchise?
0: I, I got to give you two, two or three. The, the first is to make absolutely sure that your corporate location, your kind of current location is absolutely successful and that you systemize the hell out of that so that other people can do that. But your system needs to make, your single location needs to make enough money that you're happy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If it doesn't, it means you're franchising because you're not making enough money Mm. because you're going to try to franchise people and sell them the entrepreneurial dream. And you're going to take 15% of their revenue, which means it's going to even be harder for them to make money. So really make sure that it makes money. Most franchisors never sell more than seven units. And it's because at some point, the early franchisees no longer believe in the dream. They need to see the data from the current franchisees. So that's the first. Second is charge more. I don't know what your business is, but whatever it is, you need to charge more so that you make more, so there's more royalties available, so there's more advertising available, so you can pay your employees more so you can deliver on your quality focus areas and your service areas so that your franchisees make more. Like just be the be the premium like the Starbucks or the FedEx of whatever, or even above that, like the hipster coffee place versus right? And then third is is just constantly grow your people. Just keep growing their skills and their confidence, their skills and their confidence because whoever you've got in there is what's going to propel the business.
1: That's really good. Thanks for letting me tee up that selfish question. Okay. Another selfish question. This one's about me. uh, And this one's more applicable to to the book. So I I like the direction that this is going to go. I'm currently building a peer-to-peer lending app. So small personal loans under $2,500, helping people get out of a financial jam real quickly by just by matching those who have a need with those who have the means. Sure. And To do this, I went out and I got a business partner who is very profound in, uh, or I should say very skilled at building tech companies. He's already had a multiple nine-figure tech exit recently, and he was able to retain his core team. And I'm very much a visionary, and he is very much uh, the integrator individual who loves to build teams, loves to build process, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So our opposite skill sets have been a dream come true so far. Being that your book is literally about being second in command, should I, as the visionary, take a step back and defer to him and, you know, me, myself become second in command, or should I, should he kind of be second in command being that he's the more integrator minded one? How do we know which role is right for us?
0: The visionary or the CEO should be the one who loves strategy, loves culture, loves vision, loves the ideation that tends to be the CEO. The second in command tends to be the one who likes to figure out how to make it come true. Okay. The the, the COO tends to be the brakes for the entrepreneur's gas, right? Mm-hmm. They tend to be the leash for the entrepreneurial fucking dragon, right? <laughs> yep. um, so, but the COO is different for every CEO. Like I would be a horrible COO for your business because I don't like technology. I don't even really... Yeah, I don't, I don't like technology. And, yeah. and so I and I have no skills around it. So I'd be a horrible second in command for that. I have 170 plus members in our COO alliance, and I would be a horrible COO for 90% of their companies. Wow. They either don't have the right skills for what their CEO needs done, or I'm the wrong culture fit for their CEO, or the size of their company is the wrong size for where my skill set or my behavioral traits you know, fit really well this helped a lot because
1: that's what we're doing, you know, I'm taking the reins of CEO. But my fear, and I'm just being honest, was if he's better with the team, and he's better with processing, he's better with building, you know, am I going to mislead the company? But as long as I can clearly articulate the vision and know how to, you know, get the best out of individuals, it sounds like we're set up for success, would you say?
0: Yeah, the key is for the two of you to stay on the same page, right? So that You're clear on what the plans are and he's clear on what vision is and you stay on the same page and you kind of divide and conquer, right? You might move more into a biz dev outward facing, you know, sales, marketing, rainmaking kind of role, raising money. He might stay focused more on the integration, the operations, the internal focus, and that can switch over time too.
1: That's exactly what we're planning. Okay. So then follow up question to
0: that. The key is that he shouldn't want to do the stuff that you want to do and you shouldn't want to do the stuff that he wants to do, but you should both want to make each other look good.
1: Okay. That we have dialed in for sure. So that being said, as what would make from a COO's perspective, how do I be the best CEO to the second in command? How do I make sure that they absolutely
0: thrive? So they're going to ask more questions than you like, because you're going to feel like they're arguing with you, but they're not. They're trying to understand and catch up with you. They're going to want to put systems and processes in place for stuff that you're not going to want to follow. So you kind of have to adapt a little bit, play within those systems and processes and just trust them to be true. You're going to have to get them to work with you in executive summaries. So they give you the, the bottom line and you can ask for more details later if you need them. You're going to have to slow down for them because you're going to come at them with a hundred different ideas. It's almost like if, if you were building you know, the iPhone, You know, we're on, what are we, version 14 or something of this. A lot of the ideas in this current iPhone probably came about when they were working on version seven, but they knew that those ideas weren't for now. Yeah. It wasn't a no, it was great idea, not yet. And they parked those ideas because a lot of what you're going to have to recognize in building your company, you might hear about, hey, we should do this meeting rhythm. Cool. But, but we're doing seven other projects right now. So there's an order of operations to what you need to work on in your company first, like in math, mm-hmm. right? Work on those foundational parts first. And then be careful with a lot of the crazy ideas that come to you from wherever is that might not be the right time, or even if they are the right time, what other projects are they going to push away? And it's just being cognizant of that.
1: What would be the most important chapter or lesson in your book, uh, Second in Command for Matt, who's my business partner?
0: It's about building the trust and relationship and communication protocol so that you can discuss and debate but not in front of the kids like mom and dad need to fight but not in front of the children <laughs> you need to you need to have the same vision of where we're taking the family and stay aligned with that vision and keep driving toward that vision you need to work to realize that conflict is healthy and that you have to work through some of those conflict areas together that you'll never actually solve all that stuff on your own but don't have the conflict in front of each other you know in front of the kids and then argue not to be to be right but argue to be heard argue mm-hmm. for the sake of the business and the sake of the core values Don't argue because your idea is better than his idea and vice versa.
1: Great pieces of advice. Conflict resolution is a tough one for a lot of people. Was there a time in your career where you guys had a conflict and you weren't sure how you were going to get through it? Can you talk us through that?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, well, there was an early stage conflict where I don't even remember what it was about, but we ended up getting a woman, um, Joan Mara, to come in and facilitate. This was 21 years ago. And she came in and actually facilitated with us to help us to understand each other and work together and collaborate to, so that we could scale. I have a a marriage counselor that I've done calls with for years to help us build stronger marriage. And but I've I've had her work with CEOs and COOs because it's the same thing, right? How do you get them to talk to each other and understand each other and apologize more and not take stuff so personally and realizing you're two different people all trying to do something together? You know, those are very similar. Those are human issues. They're not. They're not like marriage issues or CEO, COO issues or just humans,
1: right? Yeah, that makes sense. Just literally human communication skills. Yeah. Um, in your six years as COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, you helped take the company from $2 million to $106 million. I mean, that's no yep. small feat. Yep. What main principles from that journey made it into the new book?
0: Well, and we did it without giving up any equity and we did it without any debt. So we were oh. very profitable in that tenure as well. Yeah, it was, it, we scaled. So I'll give you a few. One is we raised prices 40% day one because no one was making any money. So I'm like, Brian, you have to raise prices because we can't afford to do anything we want to do. Can I stop you there? Was there a lot of fear around if we raise prices? Oh, yeah. We may not have customers. Yeah, well, the, the the comment from the 12 or 13 employees where we're going to go bankrupt if we raise prices. I'm like, we're going bankrupt anyway. Like nobody here is making money. You're not making money. He's not making money. Franchisees aren't making money. Guys in the trucks aren't making money. So like nobody's making money. So we got like, what's the point? Let's... So we raised prices forty percent, and everybody was starting to make money, and then we could afford to do what we wanted to do. That was one. Second one was we to build an amazing business, it has to be a little more than a business, a little bit less than a religion. You've got to get into the zone of a cult. So we built systems to become a strong cult and culture. Uh, we ended up ranking two times in a row as the number one company to work for in British Columbia. And the year before I left, we ranked number two in all of Canada to work for. Um, so very, very strong culture. And that permeated the organization. And that's how we got more done with less people faster was you know we had that machine. Um, growing people, like we absolutely I obsessed about growing people. my My whole thing was we doubled the size of the company six years in a row. Jeez. Like imagine double revenue six consecutive times, right? So when you do that, you're either putting people out of a job or you're or you're having to hire people above them constantly, or you're growing them so that they can keep up with the job that they're in. But, if you're the marketing manager of a 20-person company, and then next year, it's a 40-person company, and next year, it's an 80-person company, or if, you're, if your budget goes from a half a million to a million to two million to four million, dude, you're running a different business, right? right. So my thing was to grow their skills as leaders, so they, so they became better at coaching, at delegation, time management, conflict management, projects, you know, reverse engineering vision. Uh, one-on-one meetings, doing interviews, like all of those things is what I grew them in. That wasn't what they did day-to-day, but it's kind of how they operated as leaders.
1: That's incredible. Quick question for you. You know, our our tagline at the show is when good people make good money, they do great things. And, and it's really just speaking of when you arm a good person with means, then they can do better things than if they didn't have those yeah. means. In all of your success as a leader and with the exits and everything, what is something great you've been able
0: to do along your journey uh that you wouldn't have been able to do without means oh so, like not just travel because that's like selfish um, yeah for other people i'm the guy who's like constantly in the drive-throughs buying for the person behind me because i just think it's funny and, and i love that i just do it and i pay and then i drive away and they never know why i did it and i don't i just do it i don't even know who they are um i pay my people more i i give people Five weeks vacation at day one, they all get five weeks vacation. You know, I had one of my employees who I found out his car had broken down, and his wife with two kids, four and two, were were driving. I'm like, that's not safe. Like, how often does it it breaks down all the time? So I sent him, I sent him three grand that day and told and gave him a a link to a car dealership to go buy a minivan and put three grand down. I looked up how much it was going to cost. I gave him a pay raise that same day. He called me crying, and he said his dad realized he needed a little bit more, so his dad coughed up another fifteen hundred. He's like, "No one, no one's ever done that for me." Like it's a rounding error, right? In the scope of of um, yeah, I think that Cameron, I'm so glad that you shared those
1: examples. It, sometimes people don't like talking about these things, but the truth is, this is what inspires people to to be successful, is to be able to help the person next to him. And I see examples of that time and time in and time out again. So, you know, I'm glad you're willing to share that. Another well, means of,
0: oh, go ahead. The other thing that I think that people need is our time, right? They, they, we often give our time to our worst employees instead of giving our time to our best employees. Yeah. And I think if you fire your worst employees, if you talent stack the organization, so you keep hiring more and more A and B players and you get rid of your C players and you give your time to your A's and B's, so you can pay people more. One A replaces three Cs. Yeah, right? You don't need to have a lot of the people you've got. So you can pay some of your current best players a little bit more and then invest in them. Give them the time. Give them the coaching. Give them the, the emotional support. Care about who they are as humans. That's what people are starving for, right? That, And some of that doesn't take money. It just takes us recognizing it and caring. I couldn't agree more. And,
1: and I see you. You know, all over the world, speaking at other people's events, other people's masterminds, uh, doing a lot of teaching—that in itself is a form of generosity. What drives you at this point to to keep paying that forward?
0: Well, I've I've done eight hundred paid speaking events too. I mean, don't get me wrong—I'm I'm paid forty thousand dollars for an in-person speaking event, and they pay my my travel. Like I'm speaking to the Entrepreneurs Organization when I'm over in Egypt, but they're mm-hmm. paying me to show up. Um, I do do some events that are pro bono, but you know I'm I'm paid ten thousand dollars for a one hour Zoom event. I, yeah. I do those constantly, like one every two weeks. Yeah, what, if it's the right group, first off, my core purpose is to help entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. That's why I do what I do. And and Simon Sinek, who popularized the idea, Simon was on my board of advisors four years before he did that TEDx talk. Wow. Four years before he wrote Start with Why, he was on our board at One Eight Hundred Got Junk. Simon flew out to meet Brian and I because he read about us in Fortune Magazine in 2003. So I've understood my core purpose for a long time. So I say yes to things that are aligned with my core purpose. That's number one. So if it's a group that can't afford to pay me and I've got time and I can do it over Zoom, I'll probably say yes to it if I can help them grow. But if it's a government organization, it's a no, right? If it's nonprofit, it's probably a no. If it's a hospital group, it's probably a no. Because not that I don't care, but it's like, the, there's too many groups that would want me to speak, but if it's an entrepreneurial group, it's easier to say yes if I have that time and I have that balance and I come in with energy. Yeah. So that's why I do it; is it's it's aligned with my core purpose. That's great. I love it.
1: You, this is your sixth book that you've churned out. Writing a book is no small feat. What keeps you writing?
0: I had no desire to ever be a writer. I was horrible in class in school. If you looked at my English clock grades in high school, I was like terrible. I was sixty percent, you know, C minus, probably a two point four GPA. First my first book that I wrote double double came out 12 years ago it was to raise my profile it was a branding it was to get my ideas out there and raise my speaking fees which it did right it took me from 3 grand to 10 grand and 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 started my brand building then i realized that there was a couple of chapters in that book that were good but there was i could have given more And that became Vivid Vision, Free PR, and Meeting Suck, where there was just a lot more content than one chapter in the book Double Double could cover. So that's where those three books came from. I was in a mastermind group, um, the Genius Network, and Hal Elrod, who wrote The Miracle Morning, walked up to me at the bathroom one day and said, hey, do you want to co-author The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs with me? I'm like, hell yeah, you're on a rocket ship with your brand. I'll do, do So I did that one. And then this one, the second in command is book six was just, there was a huge need in the market. No one's really talking about COOs. Yep. I've got a podcast that I've done 245 episodes called the second in command where I only interview COOs and I have the CO Alliance. So I had all this IP and data and people. And I just thought, I'll just share that. So it was, that was probably the one need a book I needed to write.
1: I love it. Pitch the book, uh, to the perfect person who's listening right now, I know you said it's for CEOs, but is it only for COOs? Who's no, this it's, book really for?
0: It's mostly for entrepreneurs who are looking to um, to bring on that second in command. That are looking to to grow their free time, to grow their business. They know that it's not by them just working harder, right? Like they're like the fly trying to get out the window. They end up dead on the windowsill. So it's how do you attract? and and onboard and build a relationship with a really strong second in command, whether that's a COO or a president or a VP of operations or director of operations or a GM or a project manager, who is your true CEO? And, and by the way, for anybody listening, if you don't have an executive assistant, you are one. So mm. how you first hire an executive assistant? I just got my EA who's been with me for seven years. She's now my EA and director of operations. I just gave her a title increase this week. She's now got an executive assistant. Wow, because there's just too much admin stuff. And I'm like, why am I paying you 46 bucks an hour now to be my EA after seven years when, when there's $6 an hour tasks that we could get delegated to somebody? Yeah, That's yeah. the first position you should hire for.
1: That's great advice. So in other words, this book's going to create a lot of freedom for those of us that are banging our
0: heads against the windowsill as you speak. It, that's the whole, like, we only start a business for one of three reasons. We started to give us cash, to give us free time, or to kind of put the stake or the flag in the ground to say that we did it. Yep. Well, if you're feeling good about what you've done, and you got enough cash coming in, the free time is, is really the big opportunity, right? Yep. And the more that you delegate, the more that you get off your plate, the more time that you free up, the faster your business grows, because you, you've got other people scaling it for you. Yep. We often hold on to stuff for too long, and we, we even slow down our growth instead of actually spurring on our growth. I love it. Okay, it's called the Second in
1: Command. It literally dropped today as we're re- recording this thing. Where's the best place for people to get it?
0: Amazon, Audible, and iTunes for sure.
1: Okay, awesome. Uh, I always do a little surprise when I've got people on there just dropping a book. Sure. Um, I love to, you know, kind of pay it forward to everyone listening. So, those that are listening, the first twenty five of you that tag both Cameron and myself with your biggest takeaway. I mean, he gave us a hundred takeaways today, so tag both Cameron and myself on Instagram with your biggest takeaway from this episode. And I and my team will buy and and personally send you guys uh, a copy of the second command. So that's for the first 25 people that tag us both. And uh, Cameron's account is at Cameron underscore Harold underscore Co-Alliance. I'll repeat that. At Cameron underscore Harold underscore Co-Alliance. I think if people at this point just type in Cameron, hey, they're going to have their rest oh, pop up with a blue they'll check find mark. Me for sure. yeah. yeah, It's the blue check mark He's easy to find. All right, guys, you know what to do take us both on Instagram with your takeaway and we'll send you some free books. Cameron, I can't thank you enough for your time. Um, I've been looking forward to this. We've got a lot of friends in common, they all rave about you. And, and I can absolutely see why you're just an incredible individual.
0: Chris, thank you. I really appreciate the time today. Congrats on a new book. Thank you.